Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Hello from Jerusalem. This is Powers in Play. Our topic today, uh, unity or opportunity. And here we are unified. Uh, we have two Irans, one Danny and one Doron. And welcome, uh, Colonel, retired, and Dr. Iran Lerman, Brigadier General uh, in the Reserves, Doron Gavish, Iran Etzion, and Danny Ayalon, all with significant resumes we won't go over right now. Perhaps uh, if you behave correctly, we will mention some of your achievements. Over the last uh, three months, uh, obviously, the uh, Russia-Ukraine war is in the headlines, and the law of unintended consequences caused us to focus on what happens when a Putin <clears throat> finds a pretext in preempting um, Ukraine joining NATO, thereby bringing uh, Sweden and Finland uh, to the doorstep of the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization. But because the uh, alliance has 30 members and is working by consensus, each member must give uh, their agreement, and Turkey is obviously using it in order to either torpedo the um, joining the uh, alliance or exact some price for um, uh, its uh, consent. So the question, first of all, for you, uh, General Gavish, um, you have been not only in a, a semi-diplomatic position as the head of the defense ministry's mission in uh, Europe, in Western Europe, but you are also in touch with your American colleagues when they um, joined the Israeli Defense Forces on exercises. And the question, first of all, is whether a military collaboration and cooperation agreement exists within a political framework in such a way that the professionals can do their job regardless of what the politicians tell them to. First of all, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the military, they have to do what they have been told by those uh, politicians. And uh, so it's not that there is a huge distinction between uh, the two uh, entities. But, but in general, of course, uh, when you're on the, on the military part, on the operational uh, part, I would say, you're trying to be very focused on your target. You're trying to be very focused on your mission and to look at it from a professional uh, point of view. You, you, have, you would have the, the political framework and you would work under it. So I think that, uh, you know, from this point of view, when it comes to militaries to militaries and to the professional uh, discussion uh, between them or among them, it's in a way easier uh, because militaries are talking professional uh, 
um, issues. They are talking about how do we defend, what is the context, what is the concept in those things, but very professionally. So I think that also, you know, in, in this uh, situation within NATO and uh, within the different uh, parties, when it comes to the military uh, point of view, it's much easier because politics, uh, they are part of it, but they are less, uh, I would say, influencing uh, the day-by-day the -day mission or preparing themselves uh, to, to the mission. Dr. Lehmann, um, you're a veteran uh, military <clears throat> intelligence officer and national security staff um, official. And obviously, when we look uh, at NATO, there is the uh, French case whereby General de Gaulle took uh, the, um, the French military out oh, of the okay. alliance, kicked the headquarters from Paris to Brussels, but stayed on as uh, a political uh, partner. <clears throat> Is it possible uh, to be uh, halfway in and halfway out? Well, clearly the French managed it somehow, although they were trying to play a triangulation game between the West and East to some extent. Uh, essentially, they never forgave the Americans for what they saw as a betrayal of French interests in, uh, uh, in Southeast Asia and in Algeria and in the Egyptian crisis of 56. So they felt they I needed... I thought they never forgave the Americans for saving them in World War II. Well, uh, that's a, a nastier way of putting the same thing. Uh, but um, the result was a, a hybrid reality, which increasingly became difficult for the French to sustain. And, um, and by, within 20 years, it was, uh, they retrieved their position as military participants. And there's a lot to be gained for Israel as well from uh, a, uh, the, the daily interaction with a highly sophisticated uh, military organization such as, such as NATO and, and some key members of NATO. At the same time, the obligation to actually, the, the, the so-called chapter, uh, chapter 5 obligation. Article 5. Article 5. Obligation to come to the aid of others in, in a war is, uh, is, a highly, is not a proposition that Israel wants to, to commit to. And it's, for, and this is, and it's for this reason also that all these years Israel has shied away from a, a formal uh, treaty of alliance with the United States, even at the bilateral level. We are allies, we are defined as a major non-NATO ally, like many others. We are defined as a special partner and ally uh, in a as a unique category, but we are not formally obliged to send Israeli troops to find a long, uh, fight alongside the United States. And I think this is a healthy distinction. We draw benefits from this work with an alliance. We actually contribute significantly in intelligence, in technology, in uh, operation solutions to challenges, desert warfare, IEDs, whatever we could bring to the table. But it is healthier not to, uh, not to commit to, uh, to uh, Article 5. Iran, it's Yon. Um, you too uh, uh, have been at the national security staff and in other government uh, functions. You've seen politicians, decision makers from up close. Mm -hmm. um, how do they weigh the uh, loss of partial sovereignty vis-a-vis -vis what Israel would gain from being backed by a multi-member alliance? 
Actually, from what I experienced, and I was involved in various iterations of uh, discussions, both with the Americans and with the Europeans, to a certain extent with NATO as well, about possible closer association between those entities in Israel, I think the problem was always twofold, and it, was, it, it had less to do with the politicians than actually with the uh, military echelons and with the actual geopolitical facts. By the latter, I mean the fact that Israel does not have internationally recognized borders. Therefore, Article 5 cannot be applied under any circumstances until, unless and until Israel reaches an agreement with all of its neighbors about all of its borders. And we're the only country, with the exception of Pakistan, that doesn't have a single continuous internationally recognized border, not even with Egypt, not even with Jordan. So that's number one. And that, that was the critical fact from both sides, both you know, the, our counterparts and from our own strategic side. Which goes yeah. back to, to what President Johnson <clears throat> asked, told Prime Minister Eshkol when they met at the LBJ ranch in early 1968. Uh, when you ask for assistance to Israel, what is this Israel that you're yes. talking about, pre-67 yes. or with the occupied territories? It's like Alex Sharon on the right and the left hand, yes. So that was the first geopolitical factor. And the second is the staunch um, uh, antagonism by the IDF and the entire military establishment, the defense establishment, to any quote-unquote infringement on their own freedom of decision and freedom of maneuver that would invariably be affected by such uh, an alliance. And it was more, again, from the professionals than the politicians. I always found it um, wrong to put it succinctly. And I think to a certain extent, we do not enjoy the kind of freedom to maneuver that we elude ourselves to believe that we do, number one. And number two, when you weigh, and of course this is a very complicated calculation, but when you try to weigh all the pros and all the cons for an alignment, a strategic agreement, which a strategic alliance between Israel and the US or Israel and NATO with the uh, counter arguments, I think the advantages far outweigh the disadvantages. But of course, it's a discussion that will be ongoing for many years. But of course, uh, everyone uh, wants to uh, get and not to give. Uh, this is natural and political. Negotiations, you know, this is about negotiations. Uh, Daniel Alon, um, you've served in Israel's top diplomatic position as ambassador to Washington and also uh, as deputy uh, foreign minister. You're a great friend of the Republic of Turkey. Um, Turkey. And, and Greece, and Greece. Yes, and Greece, of course. <laughs> I'm a and national hero in Greece, by the way. You are. <laughs> sure. Yes, I, I've seen statues uh, of yourself uh, on a horse there. <laughs> in, the Parthenon, in the Parthenon, yeah. Now, uh, Turkey uh, is now uh, playing uh, a very interesting game. Uh, there are uh, as we know, 30 members, member states uh, of NATO. There are those um, formerly members of the Warsaw Pact, such as Bulgaria, which perhaps Russia can put pressure on uh, to torpedo the uh, accession of uh, Finland and Sweden. But Turkey, um, of all countries, with its history regarding uh, Russia, with the Black Sea, with everything we know, the S-400 and the F-35. Turkey uh, is now threatening uh, to uh, block uh, the, the deal. Um, how uh, much of it is only bargaining 
and how much uh, of it uh, is real? Well, looking into uh, Turkey's geopolitical landscape mm-hmm. today, I believe that uh, the position that they take is mostly opportunistic for a bargaining chip. I don't think that uh, Turkey can uh, afford itself to really go, um, you know, um, you know, all the way uh, out against the alliance, against the United States, uh, when they are also very much exposed vis-a-vis the, uh, the Russians. So uh, the Turks, I guess, like Turks, will, uh, <coughs> will negotiate. And I think if they get few things that they want uh, vis-a-vis the PKK and, uh, you know, and a few other things, maybe even uh, economic uh, aid, I don't think that uh, they will go all the way because if they overplay their hand, although there is no uh, protocol or an official way to uh, dislodge them from uh, NATO de facto, that could happen, and uh, they will find themselves uh, in a very, very dire straits. I believe that I'm not sure about uh, Erdogan because he has proven himself to be, uh, when he needed to, uh, quite uh, rational, uh, but also the people around him, I think, and especially as they are approaching an, uh, an election soon, I don't think that Erdogan, from political uh, um, um, reasons, will want to be in a Confront, direct confrontation with the entire alliance. So I believe it's a just an opening, salvo position, and they will come to terms. Iran, um, Secretary of State um, Anthony Blinken uh, recently talked with the new uh, his new French counterpart, which uh, interestingly enough, the title there is Minister for Europe and Foreign Affairs, <coughs> because Europe is not foreign affairs. Being right, a, a member and leader of the EU, France does not consider European relations as part of um, uh, foreign, foreign affairs. He asked. He France asked. Is her, not foreign to them. Yes. <laughs> so so he um, asked her to to uh, help with the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO, even though this is EU business too. So uh, how how do you uh, uh, relate these two organizations? Um, in this crisis. By the way, uh, with the Turks, it will be very meager help. The relationship between Paris and Ankara uh, reached uh, rock bottom uh, in recent years. Uh, the French have come openly in support of the Greek and Cypriot position on questions such But we've known Erdogan to change his mind. Uh, Erdogan is definitely in, obliged to change. By the way, I, I think the, the, the core story here is about the significant presence of uh, Kurdish um, nationalists in Finland and Sweden. Uh, the names are known. And, um, the, 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 the Turks will have to find a way to basically climb down uh, while saving face. But um, the French position is clearly uh, in support now of a very robust Europe. The problem is, again, most, by and large, the problem again is Turkey for another reason. The, uh, and, and the communications between what I uh, sometimes call the BBBs, big Brussels bureaucracies, the one downtown, the EU, and the one uphill in the very uh, NATO, have been almost minimal because of the Cypriot question. Turkey is a member of, the, of NATO, but not a member of the EU. Greek Cyprus, or what the Turks dismissively call the Greek area of, of Cyprus, 
is a member of good standing of the EU, but not a member of NATO. And over this question, over the years, it, it was very difficult to coordinate policy between these two institutions. Uh, this has given rise to some attempts to create a European military non-dependent on NATO, but that is... Maybe Israel could mediate between them the way <laughs> Bennett has mediated between Zelensky and Putin. We certainly have a profound interest in seeing the Cyprus question resolved um, for, for many reasons. Energy. Energy. Uh, finding a, a rational delineation of the EEZs in the Eastern Mediterranean to the satisfaction. And we are against holding on to occupied territories. Well, uh, we are against <laughs> settling uh, them. We are against the idea of, of the return of uh, massive popul refugee populations uh, after long wars. Uh, the long and the short of it is um, Turkey is a key player in this respect as well and, and a problematic one. Um, for years, there was a murmur in NATO that maybe a way should be found, since there's no, uh, in the Statute of uh, 49, there's no provision for throwing out a member. But there are ways of structuring the, the internal power dynamics so that some members stay on the first floor and others... More equal than others. Others are more equal than others. Um, Turkey can no longer afford to be relegated to that position, with a growling bear to the north of it. So um, I, I think that at the end of the day, they will have to find a compromise. So just a comment. Uh, it's interesting that what Turkey is now demanding of the Nordic countries, that is um, expulsion of the PKK uh, uh, members is what Israel demands of Turkey regarding the Hamas members uh, residing in it uh, and uh, operating against Israel. General Gavish, uh, regarding the military benefits as well as the costs, we know that uh, Finland is going to add uh, an 800-mile border uh, for NATO with Russia. Uh, this is going to be a burden for Russia but also for the alliance if it wants to position forces in Finland. So um, on balance, is it a plus or a minus for NATO? For, for NATO, of course, from a military point of view, it's, it's a big plus. It's, it's a, you know, uh, from the intelligence point of view, if we're talking about those uh, obvious things, even before deploying systems uh, over there, uh, there is a huge, huge advantage there, being, uh, being there, uh, being on the border. And, uh, of course, it is an advantage uh, from uh, the point of view that uh, if you would have to, um, in, in a, we hope we won't get there, but uh, in a war with uh, Russia, of course, you have another flank that uh, you could um, react from. Uh, so, so the answer is yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely an advantage <coughs> from, from a military point of view from, uh, from NATO. But I, I also would like to remark on what was saying. I completely agree with, you know, looking on Ardouin, also his behavior toward Israel. I mean, we've been, as you said, we've been, uh, if, same as with the France, same with, it was the same with us. And he found a way in a very pragmatic way to see how does he behave differently and what could he gain from it. And, and also from the military point of view. Uh, this is also an advantage that uh, he could uh, use this bargaining uh, position 
for having some uh, maybe military uh, uh, equipment uh, from the United States that is uh, in needs for its Air Force, for example. So, you know, I also I also believe that uh, it's a pragmatic uh, way of uh, thinking, and uh, we find a way. Uh, But General, you've been um, <coughs> in charge of Israel's air defense, and air and missile defense. Yes, uh, okay, not, not uh, the air superiority interceptors that <laughs> the Air Force uh, uh, em- employs. The uh, Russians uh, have reminded uh, the, the Finns and the Swedes ominously mm-hmm. that they have missiles uh, in Kaliningrad. Mm-hmm. And um, therefore, this could probably mean uh, some new uh, defense for these uh, new members mm-hmm. of NATO. So again, uh, the United States will have to supply them um, an added cost while all of those NATO members, old and new, are asked to um, uh, at least mm-hmm. budget 2% of their budgets for defense. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And probably ballistic missile defense is, is one of the first uh, military means that... Uh, countries uh, today in Europe are looking at. Uh, we see what is happening in Germany uh, now, for, uh, for example. But for sure in, uh, in uh, Finland and Sweden, uh, and, uh, you know, I've been in a, in a conference, I think it was back in 2014, about the ballistic missile defense of, uh, of Europe and NATO, and it was already there. I mean, they understood this is, this is something that they would need. Now I think there is not, there is not a question. Um, and the but but uh, <clears throat> all Western powers made sure that the Russians know that uh, these defenses are against the North Koreans and the Iranians <laughs> and not against them because this will destabilize arms control agreements. You're right. But then from this, uh, you know, from the other end, we see even today there, there is a de- U.S. deployment to Poland. So it's there and it's happening. Uh, you're right that in a different situation, when it was calm, then when you bring in uh, defense systems, then it applies that you want to do something. But during a conflict, uh, we see that it happens. So I think that um, uh, to your, going back to your, to your uh, question, yes, there is a, it, it's a big advantage, and uh, probably the ballistic missile defense will be one of the main uh, issues that they would have to discuss. A question for both of you, Iran and Danny. Uh, the alliance is a coalition of 30 states, but most governments of member states are also coalitions. So it's a domestic issue in addition to being a foreign policy and national security uh, one. Is that a problem? Uh, and the question uh, goes uh, two ways. One, regarding decision-making in a coalition government, and then, in a democracy at least, There is the possibility that the government will change. One government um, commits itself to this new move. And of course, there is continuity in foreign policy. But the next government uh, could be against it. Um, if we take an extreme example, um, President Trump and the <coughs> JCPOA, um, Netanyahu um, helping Trump uh, revoke uh, American participation in it, uh, and so on and so forth? Well, it's an age-old question. It's not going to change. I uh, thought I, if, I uh, invented can, it. <laughs> if we can try and, and kind of pick and choose some of the new elements in the equation, 
I would enumerate uh, the following. Number one, the role of public opinion. It's very different in the age of social networks. Mm. And what we're seeing now, for example, in Finland and Sweden, is an, 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 an really an Seek astonishing change. speed of a, a drastic policy change in his, of historic dimensions. 200, 300 years of neutrality overturned overnight, m- mainly because of bottom-up pressures from the public. So, if you will, the uh, power relations between the peoples and their governments has transformed fundamentally and continues to transform. Thanks uh, to Putin. One, one man caused this change. Yes, but uh, if uh, in, under different circumstances, uh, if a few years ago, the dynamics would have been different. I mean, it would have taken much longer and you know, it would have been different. And as you correctly say, it could turn back or turn into a different direction as quickly as it did this time. So you're absolutely right that the level of volatility is much higher. And you're also right to point out Trump and the U.S. and and Trump's foreign policy vis-a-vis not only Iran, but also NATO. We remember just uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Angela Merkel saying that, you know, completely in shock, that for the first time, the Europeans can no longer trust the U.S. to fulfill Article 5. And this could very well reincarnate if Trump is re-elected. And it doesn't even have to be Trump. Now that the GOP is completely ruled by Trumpism, uh, whoever is elected from that side of the American aisle could just as easily go back on any kind of uh, commitment by by the Americans. And that, of course, goes very deep into the calculations of the Europeans. It is is burnt in in their collective... 1919, all over again, the the, uh, Republican-led Senate... Uh, refusing to ratify the League of Nations. And and the last thing I would say in terms of transformations is, and that is due to Putin and and his invasion of Ukraine, that the collective understanding or uh, collective consciousness of the Europeans when it comes to defense uh, affairs and to their own national securities and even personal securities has been transformed fundamentally, and this is irreversible. I mean, I remember discussions with some of my Polish colleagues years years ago, and they were trying to convince me that there is still a very strategic Russian threat on Poland, and I would, you know, I would try not to laugh in their faces. Um, but they were right. And I think this is now true for every European, and it's not going to go away regardless of the final outcomes of the war in Ukraine. Uh, and that is a sea change. What, what's your view, uh, Danny? You, you've been... Um, the number two man at the foreign ministry when the minister was Avigdor Lieberman, uh, a Moldovan uh, by birth, uh, when Moldova was part of the Soviet Union. Was that, by the way, uh, uh, any factor, the um, personal experience? Well, there was certainly some affinity and some sympathy uh, towards Moldova by Lieberman and uh, the, the Eastern Bloc. <coughs> uh, you can see it not just in the different um, declarations, but also you see where you go, you know, uh, where you put your uh, foot or your money in, and uh, most of his trips were. He to, put uh, his money Bloc. or took <laughs> Well, By the way, uh, to my chagrin, he was the only Western foreign minister back in 2012 when Putin returned to power 
he went specifically to Moscow and sat with him and vouched for a free and fair elections when everybody else said how uh, distorted and uh, fake it was. So yes, uh, personal, of course, um, personal, I would say, persuasion has something to do with it. But I would say that I agree with uh, Iran about, you know, where you know, the NATO coalitions within coalitions may go. It can go every which way. But in the case of Israel, I think there is a, um, a culture of not uh, uh, trusting alliances, certainly not the international community, and I think we have a good reason why, not mm -hmm. surprising. And there's also a um, tradition of going it alone. So in that respect, I think it is very deep down in terms of culture, not just among the, uh, the, the military, but also the political echelon. And it will be interesting to, to take, I don't know if uh, there have been any uh, uh, recent polls taken but uh, Israelis have been stung many, many times by uh, the international community, whether the UNEP in uh, 1967, which was supposed to, um, to um, but it guard. Worked, it worked for 10 years. It worked for 10 years, right. But uh, we are here thinking hundreds of years from now. Not but just but why do you bring up uh, public opinion polls? Uh, is the public uh, going to vote according uh, to such an issue? Are the politicians going uh, to I, be I, affected by what the public thinks? I'll tell you from my perspective in the different uh, you know, uh, discussions I've been involved in, including in, in Washington, it seems like the best of all, I would say, contingencies for Israel is not to belong formally into a coalition, but to link itself very, very uh, strongly with a superpower, namely the United States. As long as the United States has this ironclad uh, commitment for Israel's security and well-being, we, uh, I mean, we take it less, I would say, importantly. Iron, I-R-O-N, not I-R-A-N. <laughs> uh, let me tie in this question and uh, address it to both of you. We should, uh, at least uh, in this part of the uh, program, turn Jerusalem-centric mm -hmm. and ask the age-old, as you said, uh, question, what's in it for us? So diplomatically, strategically, Iran, and then militarily, Iran. Well, uh, on the positive side of the ledger, Israel formally joining a, an alas, which almost naturally would be NATO. Uh, we, are, we have been in dialogue with NATO, Mediterranean, and a med dialogue with NATO now for the better part of 20 years, uh, would, would signal to all our neighbors that we are here to stay. Israel, as President Obama once said, Israel is not going anywhere. And that the strategy of isolation has failed. And that our position is not just hanging by the thread of American policy, but it is part of a broader um, alignment and uh, forces. And there is a commitment to Israel's survival by a very important bloc of nations. Um, but at the end of the day, the other side of the equation is that much of this is already there without the, uh, without the formal obligation uh, to come to our defense. And the negatives uh, on this, on, in this respect are, first of all, uh, the sense that uh, um, s subjecting uh, the IDF to NATO authority uh, would have se severe consequences on our freedom of action. 
There are certain aspects of the Israeli defense posture that we don't even want to discuss, and we are under obligation to our American and French friends never to discuss, and so it will only complicate matters. And and moreover, that um, given our precarious uh, situation, and given that the IDF is based on the draft, uh, we cannot commit to sending significant forces abroad to fight alongside others in a, you know, a NATO mission in Afghanistan, for example. So the, the uh, and, and the same has been true for many years also in the, on the very important question of a bilateral alliance. So uh, at least from my point of view, I believe that the negatives still outweigh the positives, certainly as long as Israel is able, without going into alliance, is now able to place itself in alignment, which is a different term. It, it, it's, it signifies um, what they call like-mindedness. It signifies cooperation, sharing of intelligence, sharing of purposes, um, coordination under certain scenarios, but without the formal commitment. And when the Indians are talking about a Western Quad, which will include the U.S., India, the UAE, and Israel. When the UAE, uh, Israel, Greece, and Cyprus sit in the Paphos Forum, when uh, Israel has a semi-formal relationship with, with NATO that does not involve an alliance, when we have this Eastern Mediterranean position, which, again, uh, does not oblige us to send forces to defend Cyprus in a war or Greece in a war, or vice versa, but generates a sense among the potential common but, but adversaries, you know, that we are together. The that, that, that serves the purpose the first, The first case was when Israel was part of the FBI, the French-British-Israeli invasion uh, of Egypt in 1956. That, that was so fragile that Ben-Gurion mm. insisted on taking the Sever Agreement in his pocket so that the British would not betray us and say that this was unprovoked. But they tried to anyway. Yes. <laughs> General? Before answering, I must go back to the point that was made by, <coughs> by Danny. Your wish is our command. Thank you. Because, no, because I think it's very important because with the United States, we already saw it happen. We saw it uh, during the Gulf War. There were, uh, there were Patriot uh, systems that were deployed to Israel. We see it all along those years. And I'm, I'm, for a second, I'm talking only about the, the missile, the, the ballistic missile defense. We have another, a lot of other areas of uh, cooperation. And preposition. And, uh, and of course, there is a preposition. Uh, there, is an, there are exercises, there are plans. There are, uh, I mean, we are there. If something would happen, uh, I believe that the United States uh, would be alongside Israeli fighting against Iran. By the way, contingency happen. planning is usually <clears throat> secret. But if you want to enhance your deterrence, maybe you should disclose some of it. Well, the idea that there is such a plan, the idea that the U.S. forces are coming to Israel, deploying, are being deployed into Israel during a contingency time, it's not a secret. It's, it's out of the open. Uh, they come here for every two years for a huge exercise. We're talking about thousands, thousands of U.S. Uh, troops, boots on the ground, here in Israel, deploying uh, Patriots, a third system. That's a Juniper systems. Cobra or Steel Challenge. This is Juniper Cobra. This is Juniper uh, Falcon, which is uh, also part of those uh, exercises. So th there is a huge 
amount of uh, cooperation between Israel and, uh, and the United States on those areas, and, and again, on others areas, and on other, also in other areas, and we see it now from the movement between UCOM to CENTCOM, it's even enhanced our intelligence capabilities, and, and there are a lot of other things that uh, we could uh, gain from it. Going back to, the, to, to your question about uh, NATO and, and from the Israeli pure military point of view, I think that Iran basically really said it all. And I, and I fully agree with what was uh, said by, by Iran. I think that, you know, from, from Israel military point of view, it's good to have exercises with NATO. It's good to, uh, to, be, uh, to, to fly, let's say, if I'm talking from the Israeli Air Force point of view, to fly in a different terrains. Uh, you could exercise yourself. Both sides could uh, benefit. Uh, but, you know, not only from a military point of view. From, as you said before, the public point of view, I really find it very hard to see the Israeli mother feeling, uh, I would say, uh, openly uh, uh, with like or um, the, the Israeli... Uh, Why? The, Everyone wants to go abroad. Yeah, uh, but I really, Not don't, under I this really don't see the consent there that the Israeli soldiers uh, would be part of uh, conflicts out of Israel. And by the way, you know what? We have enough challenges here in Israel for our militaries, and we need them here. So... <clears throat> We reached the final four, final four minutes, uh, and therefore each of you has only one minute. <laughs> and the question is, if the war between Russia and Ukraine goes on, apparently Russia's resources would be diverted there, but the diplomatic uh, outcome um, would not be in doubt. It, it would only be a very slow and devastating grind. What's the best outcome of the war right now? Danny. I think the best is uh, for the, uh, first of all, for the, all the violence and the skirmishes to stop on where they are. And secondly, to uh, start diplomatic uh, negotiations uh, in, in seriousness to come out to some kind of a solution. I think that at the end of the day, Ukraine will have to give something for the Russians to completely leave uh, Ukraine altogether and commitments not to invade again. Leave Eastern Ukraine, the uh, Russian Russified uh, districts, is that a realistic outcome? Um, depends the right now on, uh, on Zelensky. And he has shown uh, great capabilities of influencing his people. So I think he, he can rationalize it. it is as in Donbass anyway. You have so many Russians there that it's a headache for the Ukrainians anyway. Yeah. I would use my minute to fully disagree with the two gentlemen here mm -hmm. on Israel's posture vis-a-vis -vis, uh, NATO and future alliances. And because we don't have enough time, I would suggest that what we need now, given the immense change in, in the geopolitical uh, environment, we need a two-tier approach. The first would be, yes, to find an arrangement by which we do align fully with NATO and the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis the new challenges which are Russia and China in this completely new geostrategic ge uh, ge alignment where Israel needs to be on that side and it hasn't so far, contrary to what we think about ourselves. We are identified not as like-minded, much less than what we should have done. So that's the first tier. And the second should be a completely new regional security architecture, which would be linked to the global one, but would be uh, completely new and would reflect, again, the new realities and the sidelining overall of the Middle East vis-a-vis -vis Europe and the uh, 
by that you mean Egypt, Jordan, the Gulf countries? Yes. And a Palestinian and, entity? Yes. And Israel, of course. Under a new arrangement, unlike what we thought in the past, because the U.S. is not going to play the kind of role that it did. NATO is not going to play the, the kind of role and that it did. Under a new arrangement and yes. under new management, too? That <laughs> remains to, to be resolved <laughs> domestically. management. The longer uh, but, but you said that you disagree. I'm still trying yeah. to understand what exactly are you disagreeing. I'm disagreeing it with the overall the, approach that Israel are. should take vis-a-vis -vis NATO, NATO, which should be to, to try and join it fully, fully. without reservations. Oh. But and now you've taken and, some uh, of his minutes. No, it, I, I gave him the... the <laughs> yes. uh, I think that, you know, the, the, one of the big questions, of course, is what would be the narrative of, of uh, what, what happened or what is the outcome of this... Uh, uh, of this uh, war and uh, looking at uh, NATO and talking about opportunity, if uh, we would stop now, I think that uh, the outcome is completely different from what uh, Putin wanted. It is probably different from what a lot of people anticipated. And it is an opportunity to, uh, to, uh, to the alliance really to unite, to enforce itself and to build plans uh, to be even a stronger aligned uh, to the, in, into the future. You have a moment, not a minute. I keep my eye constantly on Beijing. The most significant outcome of this war will be represented by what she has learned from Putin's mistakes. So this is going to be one of the topics for a future program. We hope to have a representative of the Chinese government as one of our interlocutors here. In the meantime, thank you very much, Eran Lerman, Doron Gavish, Eran Etzion, and Daniel Elon. And we will be back for a new program of Powers in Play very soon. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.